high school can be pretty annoying when no one understands where you're coming from. So um, nobody's actually aware of what's going on in Libya. Like, no, no not even one person. Nuseba and her sister, Imtimam, are Libyan and American. They were born and raised right outside of Washington, D.C., but a lot of their family is still in Libya. And they're close. Yeah, we yeah. used to visit every year. Visit their cousins, their uncle. They're always in touch. So we were actually driving home and my cousin texted. That's Empty Man, the 16-year-old. And she was like, oh, you know, I'm so sorry for your loss. It didn't sound good, but they didn't know what she meant exactly. I had a feeling because my parents, they started like bringing up the topic of like war and stuff. So this really sad and scary international game of telephone began. It wasn't like confirmed it was him. I couldn't even drive. And then they heard back. And then I just started broke down, you know, completely. I was like, okay, wow. It was confirmed. Their favorite uncle, their father's brother, Musaddiq Tunali, was a victim of Libya's civil war. From what they understood, there had been an attack on his neighborhood, on the southeast edge of Tripoli, Libya's capital. And that's where he died. I was crying and crying. I couldn't see anything in front of me, and I had to pull over and, you know, get my life together. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. Today we bring you a political novella that involves an infamous colonel, an American warlord, and a family living in suburban Virginia, all told through a Libyan-American who has the ear of Washington, D.C. We're starting with the family, the Tunalis in Virginia. My uncle was like, like my dad, and it was like a really hard loss, um, especially to my dad because he was like his best friend and stuff. Across the room from the girls on the other side of the tea and pastries their mom had set out, Abdul Hakim Tunali was listening to his daughters talk about his brother, Musaddiq. And when he came up with the lawsuit and everything, we were supporting him, 100%. And that's when Abdul Hakim jumped in. To compensate the victims and also to bring him to the justice. You know, justice means to, uh, to have a fair, uh, a fair judgment. The Tunali family is suing an American citizen who is also a Libyan warlord. His name is General Khalifa Haftar, and he's the man they hold responsible for Mossadegh Tunali's death. Oh, it's, it's really sad, really sad that to hear that innocent civilians just living in the country are being killed for no reason. They're filing suit in a Northern Virginia court. When you think about Libya these days, it can be hard to keep up with the news. There was a revolution nine years ago, and then Muammar Gaddafi, who had ruled the country for 42 years, was overthrown and killed. But after that, things get a little murky. There's one name, though, that keeps coming up, and that's General Khalifa Haftar, or Field Marshal Khalifa Haftar, commander of the Libyan National Army, if you want to get specific. And we do. Because it's not just the Tunali family. Since this recent civil war began, Haftar has been held responsible for more than 1,000 deaths. Of course, Libyans, but refugees too. So, to get specific, we called Hafid al a senior fellow for the Foreign Policy Institute at Johns Hopkins. 
And when we first tried to set up this interview, he had to postpone because he was speaking on Capitol Hill. It was a panel that included me and Ambassador Jonathan Weiner, who was the special envoy of the Obama administration to Libya. And most of the audience were the staffers, uh, various um, senators, I guess, and congressmen. We aren't the only ones asking Hafid about Khalifa Haftar. His background is in economics, but he's been talking about Libya for a while. I was born in Tripoli. I came to the United States when I was 17. And one of the side effects uh, when you start speaking your mind, especially in our part of the world, is I cannot go to Libya, unfortunately, for the last few years. I have uh, a number of family, immediate family, including my mother, who still insists that she doesn't want to leave her house and that if a bomb hits her, she's fine dying in her own home, uh, no matter how much I try to get her out. We should say that Libya is one of the few countries that has no recorded cases of coronavirus. Though Khalifa Haftar's spokesman has been quarantined on suspicion that he contracted the disease. Libya is so far one of the least affected countries by COVID-19. But its weak healthcare system could put it at risk for a possible outbreak. The truth is, the country's had other issues to worry about. It's been isolated from the outside world by war and instability. So that's a little bit about Libya now. But this story starts back when Libya had a king. Gaddafi and Haftar had their ups and downs. The high point was when Haftar helped Gaddafi overthrow the king. In September 1969, a 27-year-old Muammar Gaddafi led a group of army officers in a coup against King Idris. They proclaimed a new Libyan Arab Republic. The low point was a decade later in the late 70s, when Haftar was helping Gaddafi fight the war in neighboring Chad. He ended up losing very, very badly. And in fact, he was captured as a prisoner of war. Along with about 300 other men by Chadian forces... And that was where Haftar conflict with Gaddafi became very personal. But that personal conflict was also very public. Gaddafi publicly disavowed knowing any, anything about these guys. And he said, we don't have any troops in Chad. I don't know what they're talking about. That, of course, was a big shock to Haftar. And it remained with him until today. So Haftar is basically abandoned by his country and its leader, sitting in a prison in Chad. But when one door closes, is the expression, in through the window comes the United States. And in the 80s, our wonderful CIA decided to help him get out and come to the, to the, to the U.S., in, to Falls Church, Virginia specifically. And why the U.S.? They sort of struck a deal with him while he was still in prison that they will help him get here with the troops that were willing to come. And of course, there was a reason the U.S. was so helpful. The CIA thought these guys might be a potential tool for the U.S. to actually undermine the Gaddafi regime. In the 1980s, President Reagan was very much interested in bringing Gaddafi down. Mad Dog of the Middle East has a a goal of a world revolution, Muslim fundamentalist revolution. But as the CIA started working with Haftar, they started to understand him better. 
the director of the Middle East and North Africa, the CIA, was a man I got to know after he retired. We became very, very good friends. And his assessment of Haftar there is still very much true now. He thought of him as a, a tyrannical figure, and we cut him loose. But we allowed him to stay in the United States. Things didn't turn out as planned. I mean, Haftar is always willing to turn. He made up with Gaddafi. And he started receiving, actually, financial aid from Gaddafi. And Gaddafi even bought him properties in Egypt, a big house that's still there for him to retire in Cairo where he wanted to go. He has still a farm here under his name in suburbs of uh, Virginia. One of his sons still lived, lives there. And then 2011 happened, yeah. and that is the so-called Arab Spring. It's yeah. the uprisings that spread throughout northern Africa. So first Tunisia, then Egypt, and then Libya. Yeah. Haftar returned to Libya at that time. Was it clear what his plans were when he went back? Uh, by that time, he became an American citizen with his family, right? Many of the people who were fighting saw him as, you know, who's this guy coming from the United States thinking that he's going to lead us. That didn't seem to shake Haftar's confidence, though. His way is confrontational. So this is his personality. On the 24th of August, 2011, the Libyan rebels overthrow Gaddafi with the help of NATO. This iconic turned infamous leader of Libya was assassinated shortly after. So the revolutions won. Then, Libya has been at war since the overthrow of Muammar Gaddafi. There are armed groups who have rejected previous attempts to disarm. It's kind of just more of the same for a while. There's no peaceful transition to democracy or any other form of government, really. Khalifa Haftar was there and was a player, but there were a lot of players in Libya. Then... In 2014, actually on the 14th of February, Valentine's Day, <laughs> uh, something extremely funny happened. Haftar came out and made a statement, you know, with his military uniform and all of that, in which he announced a, a coup. What Haftar is saying here is the army is not taking over but it's acting in the national interest to end the rule of the militias. He says he would be helping to appoint a president and an interim civilian government. So he says it's not a coup, even though it sounds like a coup. He had no real military power. He had nobody. It was him alone. It was surreal. Usually in coup <laughs> announcements, you have the person announcing the coup and they're flanked by military people Precisely. with big guns. Exactly. So that didn't it, happen here. People were laughing him off. It was almost like a joke. But not entirely a joke. At that time, the government in Libya and Tripoli and the parliament issued indictments against him for his arrest. So he fled to Benghazi. And this eastern city is where Haftar starts to take control. There, he started to recruit officers from the Gaddafi uh, regime. Haftar was making friends outside Libya, too. And he established, uh, and this is really a huge part of his entire project, he established contacts with the Abu Dhabi government, the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Zayed. 
Mohammed bin Zayed Al Nahyan is not just the crown prince of Abu Dhabi. He's also, effectively, the ruler of the United Arab Emirates. And UAE began to arm Haftar and finance him and help him. United Nations monitors have repeatedly accused the Gulf state of violating the weapons ban in support of Haftar's forces. At that time, Mohammed bin Zayed was, and still is, convinced that this democratic wave across the Arab world is a dangerous thing. They also have interest in gold, oil, and gas, uh, especially gas. I don't think it's Haftar's war. In many ways, uh, the UAE is driving Haftar. It also got oddly personal for Hafid. Hafid's been a guest here at Al Jazeera for many years, and he used to be a returning guest on Sky News Arabia, based in the UAE. They completely cut off their relationships with me because of the UAE government pressure. Did they ever give you that in writing, or was it more of just a a slow backing away? They no, just not stopped even calling. slow. It was abrupt because in one program, for example, I attacked Haftar and said those who support him are truly damaging the country, damaging the future of the country, and was going to backfire on them. And that was the end of that. Stopped completely. So Haftar is in the east of Libya, gathering forces with the help of the UAE and also Egypt and Saudi Arabia. And in the west, there's another Libyan government, Haftar's opposition, the government of national accord. They are a weak government in every sense of the term. That government was formed in Tunis with the help of the UN. They couldn't come to Tripoli. They stayed in Tunisia for three months. Militias were keeping them out. Then finally, they ended up landing in Tripoli at night through the sea. Gunfire was heard shortly after unity government members arrived. They snuck into their own country under the darkness of night. Really, you can't make this stuff up. And they stayed in this military camp on the fringe of the city. That gives you a sense of how this all started. However, the international community recognized them and gave them the foreign legitimacy. So this shaky government of national accord is struggling to hold on to the capital, Tripoli. And then, Haftar's forces start moving west. Uh, It's been very bloody. More than a 1,000 people have been killed so far. And under Haftar, one of his commanders was accused of war crimes. There are also over 200,000 citizens of Benghazi who escaped him, and they are now in Tripoli. That tells you a lot. In this campaign by Haftar to bit by bit take over control of Libya, April of 2019, seem like kind of a game changer for some people because that was when he declared his siege on the capital, Tripoli. Absolutely. At that time, the factions of, of, uh, in Libya uh, had agreed to a UN plan. He had agreed himself. The Secretary General of the United Nations came to Tripoli. Everybody thought he was on board. Then all of a sudden, on April 4th, General Haftar upended the international community's peace plans by ordering an offensive to try and seize Tripoli. The operation launched defiantly just hours after he'd met UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres, who was visiting Libya at the time. He had accumulated enough hardware from the UAE, who was supplying him with massive amount of armaments. He decides to unleash this 
attack on the Capitol. And that's where the family from suburban Virginia comes in. They were trying to get the civilians out of the area. Abdul Hakim says his brother was at home in Tripoli trying to help. They were trapped under very heavy shelling, bombing from, from Haftar's militias. Unfortunately, he got stuck. And uh, unfortunately, he got uh, killed. He was more than a brother. He was uh, the closest friend to me. (laughs) He used to live there uh, in Tripoli for, for the whole life. More than two million people are living in Tripoli today. And the attacks are still going on. Since warlord Khalifa Haftar's forces began an offensive to take control of Tripoli two weeks ago, the violence has escalated. Less than two weeks after Haftar's initial assault, he got a phone call. I asked Haftar Gwail about that call. U.S. President Donald Trump (laughs) had a phone call with him. That was a really shocking call. The White House said President Donald Trump spoke on the phone with Haftar earlier this week, offering his support and praising the warlord's fight against what he called terrorism and securing Libya's oil. I can tell you that I haven't met one single official of the State Department or even the Central Intelligence or the DOD or anybody who even knew about that call. No one knew before it happened, but after... Word got around. I was told by insiders to the administration that the reason that call happened is because of the influence of foreigners, especially Mohammed bin Zayed of the UAE. The president bears a responsibility for a lot of the death and destruction that happened in the last 10 months. That encouraged Haftar. He saw that as a green light. The United Nations says that more than 150,000 people have been forced to flee their homes since General Haftar started his offensive on Tripoli in April. More than 600 people have been killed or injured. The consequences are enormous. The United States is the only country that literally can order him to stop. And in Virginia, the Tunali family is also trying to get the U.S. to stop Haftar. No matter how much international support Haftar enjoys, he will be brought to justice. They're using the U.S. justice system. Not too long ago, there was a hearing in Northern Virginia, and Abdel Hakim was outside the courthouse with his lawyer. Haftar's forces target civilian neighborhoods, which amount to war crimes according to the international humanitarian law. His lawyers say this is the first time the Torture Victims Protection Act has been used against a U.S. citizen. And if, in the end, the judge rules in Abdel Hakim's favor... The court will go after him and, uh, and take, take over all his properties inside the United States and abroad as well. At this point, attorneys are standing by ready to seize Haftar's assets in up to 12 different jurisdictions around the world. Abdel Hakim wants to bring a criminal case, too. We want the U.S. authority to take him 
back to the United States so he can be judged. And now it seems Abdul Hakim has started a trend. In this case, we uh, sued Mr. Heftar, one of his cohorts, and we've also sued the UAE. Another case has recently been filed against General Haftar in a Washington, D.C. court. Khalifa Haftar is 76 years old. Yes. Do you think there is much more of this to come? I think the UAE knows this is not a guy who who can be a leader in any significant sense. They're using him as a Trojan horse. Haftar has yet to sign onto any ceasefire. And recently... There's a new tack. Today's news, Libya's state oil firm says that it's been forced to halt operations at five major oil ports in the east of the country. Its facilities have been under attack by forces who are loyal to the warlord Khalifa Haftar. 97% of Libya's revenues come from oil. Libya went from producing about 1.2 million barrels a day to less than 100,000 barrels. So he's essentially trying to starve the, the country. I care about the city I was born, and I don't want to see this destruction being visited on it, right? And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Amy Walters with Alexandra Locke, Priyanka Tilbe, Ney Alvarez, Dina Kisve, and me, Malika Bilal. The sound designer is Alex Roldan. Natalia Aldana is our engagement producer. Stacey Samuel is the executive producer, and Graylin Brashear is Al Jazeera's head of audio. Special thanks to Saad Turjman for translation help. If you like the show, subscribe. And while you're there, rate and review us. You can also follow me on Twitter at mmbilal and follow The Take at AJTheTake. We're on Facebook and Instagram, too.